we're talking about more of the serial monogamy side of things or just the dating and pursuing relationships as an escape from confronting something else or some other uncomfortable Mm -hmm. feeling. I definitely think that I did more of that. Well, both during my monogamous times of my life and then also after becoming polyamorous, seeking that, you know, that that excitement of getting into a relationship or kind of that idea of a romance as a way to distract from whatever else was going on, you know, being stressed about money, being stressed about not having a job. And I guess to answer that question about would I still be polyamorous if I wasn't, I found that something that's really drastically changed in my life, but I'm still very much a polyamorous person. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about love addiction. This term is controversial, so we'll first be diving into what addiction is, how addictive behaviors can manifest in our relationships, how addiction differs when we talk about behaviors, and some of the differences between healthy polyamory, healthy dating, and love addiction. Have y'all heard this term bandied about before? Love addiction? Love addiction? Yes, yes. I feel like sex addiction is the one that I've heard more frequently, but love addiction, that's interesting. I I guess uh, when I think of love addiction, I think of like serial monogamous person. Really? Interesting. Talk about that a little bit more. Well, somebody that instead of taking time in between relationships, they decide that I need Mm. to get immediately into another relationship because... I myself or this tied up in it, or I simply don't want to be alone. And I love that feeling of being in love. I love that feeling of a new relationship, perhaps, which I know is something we're going to talk about later in this episode. Yeah, so we will hit that a little bit later. But uh, first, I wanted to present to you um, findings from Dr. Robert Palmer's uh, paper, 1985 paper, Addicted to Love. He has a list of symptoms of love addiction. And so this Mm, is the list mm. of symptoms that Dr. Mm -hmm. Palmer lists. Uh, The lights are on, but you're not home. Mm -hmm. Your mind is not your own. Mm, Your heart sweats. Your body shakes. I don't know how a heart can sweat. Quite frankly, yeah, but yeah. I didn't catch that on the first read through. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> okay, your heart sweats, your body shakes, you can't sleep, you can't eat, your throat is tight, you can't breathe, hmm. you see the signs, but you can't read. I love that. And like, you're just a rendered <laughs> incapable of reading. And you're running at a different speed. So if you answer oh, yes you. to a, at least those, then you might as well face it. You're addicted to love. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> oh, it's such a good song. It's such a banger, even if it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Amazing. So before we dive specifically into what the actual not Robert Palmer literature says about love addiction, 
it's important to first address what is addiction at all. I thought you were going to say it's first important to address what percentage of our listeners did not get the reference to the song. All you Zoomers out there. Yes. Yeah. Anyone who's Gen Z, probably, probably not. It's probably rolling their eyes at us old people for Mm -hmm. singing songs from the 80s. I don't know. I don't know. But right. To be serious, what is what is addiction? And so this is a complicated one. And it's tough when you talk about these terms that are not officially forms of addiction. Uh, When you talk about things like sex addiction, love addiction, even like video game addiction or shopping addiction or whatever, that people can feel very strongly on either side. And there's some pros and cons to even using that terminology at all. So, you know, for example, we might do an episode where we talk about love addiction or sex addiction or porn addiction or something, and we could talk about it like it exists, and we get a bunch of messages from people being like, that's not a real thing. You know, that's terrible that you're saying love addiction. That's not a real thing. And then we could have an episode where we say, hey, this is not actually a a form of addiction in the same way. And then we get people saying, hey, that's really hurtful. I'm, I'm this, or my partner's this, or you know, this has been a really helpful thing for me. And so the point of it is that there are a lot of strong feelings on either side. And there is, there is you know, existing research talking about addiction. And then there's also you know, the ongoing research of trying to decide what counts as an addiction. What does that really mean from a, like a clinical point of view, and rather than just a conversational Robert Palmer addicted to love kind of context. <laughs> that context that we all know and love. Yes. <laughs> I recall sex addiction particularly being quite in vogue as a thing to say when a bunch of male celebrities were mm-hmm. saying that they were sex addicted and were going yeah. into treatment for it. So for that anyone was, who was caught having an affair. Correct. Yeah, and that was a excuse. really interesting yeah. time. Exactly. It was a very hot excuse. However, in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the only behavior that's been categorized as addictive is gambling. That seems Me- meaning not a substance addiction, but just like a behavioral. A behavior. Yeah. Like constantly this, yeah. going. And that is truly something that can really ruin your life if you become addicted to gambling. And also internet gaming disorder has been flagged for further review and inquiry. That's interesting to me. Are we talking about like Candy Crush or something here? (laughs) It's only Candy Crush. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing else. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I was imagining more like World of Warcraft, but I'm not sure the context of what they're actually looking into. Yeah, that's that's what it is. Okay, it's like MMOs. Yes, yeah. You got it. Got it. But lay people, as we've been talking about, they may still apply this word addiction to really just everything. Sex, pornography, phone usage, social media, all of the above. So the reason why we may apply the word addiction to all of these other things is because there are behaviors out there that can really mimic substance addiction. And some of those behaviors include things like constant cravings for whatever it is that you're saying you are addicted to or that somebody else might be saying that you're addicted to or neglecting other life responsibilities. Also withdrawal symptoms. If all of a sudden that thing that you have been quote unquote addicted to is now gone from your life, uh, the compulsion toward the substance or behavior, even when there are diminishing rewards. So, you know, uh, there was that movie uh, a, a few years back with Joseph Gordon-Levitt 
on quote unquote porn addiction. Mm. And yeah, I, I think it, one of the points of the movie was that even as much as he used porn, it was starting to have diminishing returns for him. So mm. when that substance or behavior is no longer producing the desired effect, and then also building a tolerance or needing higher or more extreme doses. Now that makes me think of, you know, uh, Dr. House needing Vicodin more mm-hmm. and more just because, yeah, it, it no longer does what it used to do for him. Right. So, yes. And Dedeker, I like what you wrote here. You'd like well, to yeah, think it is corroborated immune. in Dr. Palmer's paper yes. where he also lists, whoa, you like to think that you're immune to this stuff. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. It's closer to the truth to say you can't get enough. Oh, so good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. Three references and we're done. Okay, okay. moving on. <laughs> uh, but so, so, you know, Emily was mentioning it does have a lot of similarities to, you know, actual physical dependency or addiction. But there is also a reason why it's dangerous or hurtful to be calling any of these behaviors that have some of those properties to call them addiction. And, you know, the first is just that it's a little bit, it may be a little bit inaccurate. So as humans, it's our human nature to seek pleasure and stimulation, even when it gets us into trouble sometimes. So sometimes we can be too quick to say, ah, well, that's an addiction because it got you in trouble and I don't agree with it. Even though we do this all the time, like this is just a normal part of being human. And so Part of it's that question of when do you start to try to say something's a problem versus when is this just part of being a human being? And then there's also concerns about, you know, by saying this, you might be minimizing the experience of people who actually suffer from chemical addiction have, right? Same as how people love to toss around, oh, that's just, I'm organizing this because of my OCD. And they don't actually have obsessive compulsive disorder. They just like things to be neat. And it's like, well... I get what you're saying, but you're kind of minimizing the experience of someone who actually suffers from this disorder. So anyway, it's a complicated thing. That's, that's what we're trying to say, right? So there's a controversy over how to diagnose love addiction. Should it even be diagnosed? Could it overlap with something else? Maybe it's indistinguishable from a mood disorder or an impulse control disorder or a condition that belongs to an obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, something on that spectrum, or as something called a biaxial continuum, which is a way of capturing the relationship between attachment-related behaviors and then reward-seeking or impulsive behaviors. So, for instance, in some individuals, high impulsivity or high reward-seeking behavior could uh, co-occur or, you know, happen at the same time as high levels of attachment behavior which can lead to sort of an obsessive dependent kind of seeking of love. The point is here, I think with all of this, that whatever we call it, this is clearly a thing that people are concerned about and something that people are worried they might have or that they like to throw at other people saying that they have it. So with that, let's, let's really get into this and, and look at what there is to actually learn about it. So we're going to dive into love addiction itself. And bear in mind that when we use that phrase on this episode, we're putting quotation marks around that. Not to completely discredit it as a phenomenon, but just to highlight the fact that this is a phenomenon that some people have observed. We don't quite have a 100% accurate term for it yet. And so we're going to apply those words, love addiction to it, just for the purposes of this episode today. But that may not be the most 
accurate label that gets applied to it from here on out. So as we said, love addiction is not in the DSM-5. No one can get formally diagnosed as being a love addict. However, there are some key patterns that a lot of articles out there highlight associated with love addiction. So things like intrusive thoughts about the other person or about the relationship, some extreme separation anxiety. So as in separation anxiety that's so extreme that it prompts you to skip work or school or to cancel plans with friends in order to not have to be separated with the object of your affection. Using love or relationship as a tool for avoidance. So avoiding other Hmm. difficult things in your life or other difficult emotions. Choosing to stay in a relationship even when it's unhealthy. Um, Now, I I think that that's not... (laughs) A lot of people do that. I've done that. Um, Sure, I've done that That's interesting that this is applicable to love addiction. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think these are kind of things where we're not looking at just one single symptom, right? I think these things, if they come together as a pattern or if they co-arise together, maybe that might tip the scales to this being more of an addictive pattern. Um, Or something like only getting joint happiness out of love or a relationship. So the idea that when I'm not in a relationship or I'm not in love with somebody, my life feels gray, boring, uninteresting. I don't have any way of feeling happiness or fulfillment unless I'm in love or in a relationship. Now, again, this gets even more complicated because there are some professionals out there who do recognize that um, what happens in our brains when we fall in love or when we're attracted to someone, it does have a similar neurochemical effect that looks like what happens in our brains when we're taking substances. And then also, there can be a similar effect in our brains when we go through a breakup. It can resemble a withdrawal experience. And so it becomes more complicated that these things sort of do look similar to each other. They sort of rhyme to a certain extent. I think something else worth noting here, again, to go back to the fact that part of this is just being a human and having human experiences. Um, I was recently looking at some studies about distraction and like being distracted by your social media, stuff like that. And we all love to blame that on our electronics and social media. But there's research about this phenomenon of humans distracting ourselves or getting distracted rather that goes back to you know the 50s, you know, well before we had any easily portable electronics. And, you know, there's evidence to suggest we've done this for our entire existence as humans. So that that urge to, I want to do something else to distract me from an uncomfortable feeling, hmm. is it's in us and it's been in us for a long time. This is not a new phenomenon and it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. But with all of that, you know, whether it's just distraction or it's specifically using love or relationships as that distraction, that when it gets out of hand to the point that it's negatively affecting your life, that's when we want to start thinking about, okay, what can I do to change this? Is there something else wrong here contributing to this or or what, right? So with all of it, I just want to remind us that this is all stuff that's natural to want to do or to feel. It's just, is this getting out of hand for you and, and negatively affecting your life? Yeah, I look at all of these things and I think of, you know, when I was in high school and I would drive and just sit outside of a person that I was 
very quote unquote in love with, I would, I would sit outside of their apartment and just look at them. And I'm like, that's a little creepy. Yes, it was. And I, I am like, that could be a separation anxiety or intrusive thoughts. Yes. That definitely is something Mm -hmm. that has happened. Absolutely. And then, yeah, feeling as though you're only worthy when you're in a relationship, things like that. All of that has definitely happened in my life, but I don't know if I would classify what I went through as a love addiction, perhaps at the time. Well, let's get into the research. Now, this first article was published in CNS Spectrum, which is a journal published by Cambridge University Press in 2009, and it's called Pathological Love, colon, Impulsivity, Personality, and Romantic Relationship. This is based on prior research at the Impulse Control Disorder Outpatient Clinic at the University of Sao Paulo. And these researchers came up with six criteria to identify pathological love or love addiction. And those include signs and symptoms of withdrawal when the partner is either physically or emotionally unavailable. Also, behavior of caring for the partner is more intense than the individual would like it to be. Loss of control over behavior with frequent frustrated attempts to reduce or interrupt the unhealthy bond. Also, a lot of time spent trying to control the partner's activities. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And it kind of feels separate from some of this other stuff. That, right. that seems more like a controlling disorder or something. Sure. Not that it's a mm. disorder, but yes. Also, abandonment of previously valued social activities, including childcare or socializing with friends and family. And finally, maintenance of the bond despite its damage to one's life. So those are the six things that they use to identify pathological love or love addiction. Now, they had 89 people out of which 50 individuals had pathological love and 39 individuals had no psychiatric pathology. And the individuals with pathological love were selected from people who answered advertisements, inviting people who felt like they were suffering from love. That's really interesting. Mm. (laughs) Suffering. What's the wording on your... What's the wording on your recruitment for this study? I'm yeah, really sure. Are you suffering yeah. from love? Exactly. And then come call one eight hundred love study. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, this love study. So to determine all of this pathological love and love addiction, they answered some questions. And the questionnaires essentially included questions about assessing impulsivity, also self-reporting true or false statements about things like novelty-seeking, harm avoidance, reward dependence, things along those lines. And then also asked about love styles. We talked about this a while ago. Wow. Mm -hmm. So things like agape, mania, eros, ludus, story. Yeah. Yeah, all of those things. And attachment styles as well. So if all of these things were self-reported, it's just interesting to me because I always wonder in studies how truthful a person is being regarding stuff like this especially when it comes to something like love and feeling really intense emotions regarding love that may not be good for you or a relationship that might not be right for you how you know outwardly correct are you gonna be in these in these questionnaires i don't know 
Yeah, that's always a challenge with any kind of study where you're, well, really any any kind of study, but especially ones where you're doing a questionnaire, which is a great way of getting a lot of data relatively easily and inexpensively compared mm-hmm. to, you know, studying someone in a lab for weeks or something like that. Uh, but yeah, it is always hard, especially for a study like this, where you're recruiting people who say, yes, I have a problem with love. And then you're giving them these questions. They're kind of going true. in with that's what this I've is got about. a problem. I'm going to focus on yeah. this. Yeah. So that's it, it, it is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And again, there were 89 individuals in this study and 50 of them had pathological love. PL individuals also had higher levels of self-transcendence. And according to the authors of the study, Quote, such a loss of limit between the individual and the other is in accordance with PL subjects' difficulties in establishing a limit between themselves and their partners, manifested by the need of constant and repetitive attitudes to have the other under control. Again, this control thing, that's really interesting. I wouldn't have gone there in my mind. That's super fascinating, though, this idea of self-transcendence, because I do think we live in a culture that really encourages that I mean, we come from especially mm-hmm. like there's a there's a strong through line in the Christian Bible about becoming as one, right? And the idea oh. that we kind of subsume our identity into the identity of the couple. And so it is interesting that I do think that we live in an environment that sort of encourages that self transcendent thinking. Yeah, I could see certain situations where people might even encourage that or or convince someone like, no, this isn't a problem, even if someone does come to them saying, hey, I'm worried that I'm, you know, too, too attached and it's making me behave in a way that doesn't match with my values that I could see a lot of people even defending that and just being like, no, that's, that's right. That's what that's a that's what a good relationship looks like. That's what you should be doing. Well, this is interesting. The PL individuals reported higher levels of dissatisfaction with their relationships. And according to prior studies from the researchers, PL individuals did not report a higher degree of emotional intensity in their relationships compared to those without PL. I would have thought the opposite, that that kind of that obsessiveness was... I don't know, perhaps masking, you know, the dissatisfaction in some way and making mm-hmm. them feel as though, no, I actually am satisfied with this. This is what I want. I'm trying to keep everything in mm-hmm. control. Interesting. But clearly, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming if they're doing the study at all, there is some dissatisfaction there. I suppose they did say they have a problem with it. That is why they came to this study in the first place. So, yeah, sure. that is interesting, though. A final quote from the study says, these results indicate that PL is not about excessive love, but rather about persisting in a very unsatisfying relationship. That's a hot take. Yeah, that's a hot take (laughs) and really unfortunate. And again, not really where I initially went with thinking about pathological love or love addiction in some way. Well, a lot of the articles that I ran across, uh, you know, some people do interpret it that way, that the love addiction, it's less about, oh my God, I just have such an impulse towards loving. Some people do interpret it as I have an impulse towards just staying in this relationship, even when it's not good for me, even if it's really, really unsatisfying. Hmm. Yeah. And that's interesting because that's different from what I associate with people throwing out the term love addiction when they're talking about polyamorous or non-monogamous people or even just sex positive people or something and throwing this label at them. It's more like 
when Emily mentioned at the beginning of the episode that her association was more about that like serial monogamy, it's like, yeah. I'm just going to keep seeking a new thing, seeking a yeah. new thing, seeking a new thing. I want to feel that falling in love feeling. And it sounds like this study is looking at a very different definition of love addiction, more, yeah, more of that hanging on to being afraid of losing a relationship, even if there's a lot of negative stuff going on there. 100%. Fascinating. So uh, we're going to look at a 2018 study. This is actually a meta-analysis. Um, this was published in the European Journal of Psychiatry called Treatment of Love Addiction, Current Status and Perspectives. So this is a, a newer analysis. These researchers define love addiction or pathological love as a pattern of behavior characterized by a maladaptive, pervasive, and excessive interest towards one of one or more romantic partners, resulting in lack of control, the renounce of other interests and behaviors, and other negative consequences. This is and saying so, lack of control versus yeah, the know, other article. Versus which wanting to control the other control. person. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And so what they think separates love addiction from just the regular experience of falling in love or in NRE is a higher degree of suffering an impact on one's functionality. Again, that feeling of the lack of control, the pervasiveness, and also negative life consequences. And they also argue that they think that love addiction should be treated as something that is distinct from other mental health disorders that have a love element to it. So for instance, there's erotomania. That is a disorder that's listed in the DSM-5. But what distinguishes erotomania is that not only does this person experience romantic feelings towards someone, but they also have a delusional belief that their love is being um, reciprocated. We've seen examples of this in recent years with certain like celebrity stalkers who mm. are maybe ex like have sort of this delusion that like the reason they're stalking is because they think they're in a relationship with this person and they think that person reciprocates their, their feelings. And so basically the authors just want to distinguish that, that that's a little bit different from what we're talking about here. Yeah, And they do go on to say that prevalence of love addiction is estimated to be around 3% of the U.S. population, although other studies point to higher numbers depending on subsets of the population, such as college students, which are closer to 25%, according to, to these criteria. And that, that, to me, makes me kind of raise an eyebrow and go back to the thing we were talking about before of, are we incorrectly trying to... to broaden this definition to capture more people when this might just be part of learning your impulse control and learning the, you know, processing of your feelings, learning how yes. to just be Thank a you. person, right? And so... <laughs> like learning what's acceptable, well, like how especially acceptable it is or isn't to... Yeah, especially yeah. as a young person. Yeah, My a young goodness. person growing up in a culture that's throwing this idea of love is what's going to make your life good and nothing yeah, else will. 100%. I mean, yeah, you got to get jaded enough to get past that at some point. <laughs> that's your problem you're not jaded enough do those podcasts for eight years then you'll be jaded right. about love no <laughs> kidding kidding um so again the specific function of this analysis was to look at how is this being treated and so they found that uh, self-help groups is the most common intervention and they recommend adopting a 12-step approach similar to other groups that exist out there for addiction management they found that some people are trying to treat it with cbt with cognitive behavioral therapy but they couldn't find any studies that actually provide any evidence um or you mm -hmm. know provide any evidence that this is being an effective method for treating love addiction 
They also found some examples of psychodynamic psychotherapy being used specifically as a way to deal with attachment issues from childhood that may be driving some of these behaviors. And I mean, yeah, once you start opening up the umbrella of, of, you know, dear attachment issues make you be a little bit wonky in the way that you pursue romantic relationships, I think that includes all of us. For sure. Yeah. So it's, it is interesting that it seems like even in the people who are trying to look at all the research, we're pretty quickly seeing, gosh, this is kind of all over the place. People are really treating this differently. And so I think for, for the second half, we're going to get into talking about how this is used to talk about polyamorous folks or non-monogamous folks or even just sex positive folks. And then, uh, you know, looking at what some people are writing about that and what we can actually take from this and, and apply to be helpful in our lives. But first, we're going to take a quick break to talk about some ways that you can support this show. If you enjoy this show, we would really appreciate it if you took a moment to listen. And if anything sounds interesting to you, go check it out. It does directly help support this show and help us to keep growing this. Thank you so much. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we're back. So what about the polyamorous folks? Are we all just love addicted? Are we? Are we all just in love with Robert Palmer? Yes. Dedeker, it's four times now. Oh, no, four shoot, times in one episode. Shoot, no. <laughs> You're like, we can't it talk broke the rule of three. Anymore. Yes. <laughs> Dang it. I guess that means we have to do two more to make it be another three. No, I don't can't. know how it works. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, have either of you ever had someone tell you that this is what's wrong with you for being non-monogamous? I know I've like seen this out on the interwebs. I don't know if anyone's ever said that directly to me, though. 
I don't believe that ever happened when I was pursuing non-monogamy. I think I definitely, I know that I enjoy people and it's fun to be in, you know, potential sexual situations with multiple people and potential romantic situations with multiple people. But I don't think that that necessarily means you're love addicted, clearly. So, (laughs) yeah, I think that's a, a strange differentiation. And in mm. just an extreme to go to. Yeah, I don't think that's ever been leveraged at me. I've seen it whipped out on other people. And mm. I've also known people personally who, because they're polyamorous, have also worried that about themselves, whether it's just picking that up from the culture or because someone has made that suggestion that, you know, I've known people who do worry. Like, oh, is this the reason I'm polyamorous? Because actually there's something compulsive here is because it's addictive. Like, if I got over this, would I not be polyamorous? It's it is interesting because when we were talking about more of the serial monogamy side of things or just the dating and pursuing relationships as an escape from confronting something else or some other uncomfortable mm-hmm. feeling, I definitely think that I did more of that. Well, both during my, you know, monogamous times of my life and then also after becoming polyamorous in both of those, I do feel like there were times in my life where I was dating or seeking that, you know, that, that excitement of getting into a relationship or kind of that idea of a romance as a way to distract from whatever else was going on, you know, being stressed about money, being stressed about not having a job. (laughs) I guess that's a little related, Uh, you know, or just like being sad about something that was going on or feeling lonely or whatever else. I've definitely seen that. And I guess to answer that question about would I still be polyamorous if I wasn't, I found that something that's really drastically changed in my life, but I'm still very much a polyamorous person, even if I I have just for one reason or another reached a point where I don't feel as much of that, like I need to be pursuing this all the time that I can kind of just sort of stand back and, and let things happen. And that can still be exciting, but less of that. I guess I did, looking back, feel a little bit of a compulsion to have that experience of developing a relationship. Because it is exciting. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's nice. And so, so anyway, I don't know. At least for me, I found that my my relationship to that pursuit of love has really changed. But it hasn't changed whether I'm polyamorous or not. Because that's more tied in a belief and kind of a way of doing things and sort of an ethics about how I do my relationships. I don't know. What, what do you two think? I don't know. I To be honest, for this episode, I wanted to try to find an expert first or someone mm. more knowledgeable than the three of us chuckleheads who could come on and talk about this. But, but you it found was, that no one else knows more than us because we're brilliant. <laughs> don't, don't even go there, Jace. Um, <laughs> no, it was more, I was like, I don't know who I'm going to find who has studied this or has written about this extensively, who's also non-monogamy affirming. You know, like like that's a little bit of the vibe that I picked up from the few people that I looked into is is people who create a lot of content about love addiction. It also tends to go hand in hand with some extreme mononormativity, yeah, right? Or really wanting really to encourage difficult. people to know like the healthiest option is to find that one person and to settle down. And that's when you know that you've healed your attachment trauma or your addictive behaviors or stuff like that. And it was funny, though, that one of the articles that I was reading just 
offhand mentioned that, like you said at the top of the episode, um, serial monogamy could potentially be a sign of love addiction in some people. I knew I'd so heard it, it somewhere, yeah, like so out it, in the ether. Uh-huh. So. It, it seems to me that you really could make the case either way that this may be separate from relationship format. Something that jumped out to me from what you were just saying from that article, too, was was earlier saying, oh, you know, oh, this love addiction's a problem. And really, the answer is to find someone good and like settle down and really value that relationship. But if we go back to that first study we talked about, they would yeah. say that that's maybe the love addicted or, you know, the pathological love version is that like, I just need to hold on to this one thing. And this is the only way to be okay is to hold on to this. It's a good point. I mean, not, not that that's exactly what they're suggesting, but I'm just like, mm, I don't think that's such a clear answer as you think it is when you're looking at all the different ways that pathological love can look. I think it just goes to show that humans are complex and we can exist in so many different spheres and we can exist, you know, wanting to stay in a relationship that's bad for us and wanting to control a relationship we're in so that it fits our idea of what, you know, monogamy or non-monogamy or whatever should be. I think, mm-hmm. I don't know, these slapping a label of addiction and calling it a day, it just... I think it seems uh, too easy. There's there's more nuance. Yeah, and sometimes by slapping that label on, you then are allowed to stop thinking about it, stop really trying to figure out what's going on. It's like, oh, well, it's that problem, I guess. Nothing I can do about it. And that's not to say everyone's doing that. It could be, oh, I, I can see that this is a thing, and now that's empowering me to deal with this. So I think maybe when you're approaching these labels for yourself or someone else even to think about, why am I wanting to put this on there could could also change things or why might this other person be wanting to put this on me? Is it because they want to not have to think about the questions that my life is raising for them? Is it, you know, that they want some way to be able to just put me in a category and put me on the shelf and not think about it or or what, right? So wherever you are, I think that's worth considering. All that said, that doesn't mean that people can't have problematic behaviors that can go along with non-monogamy. So an example that comes to mind is that compulsive seeking of NRE and then getting bored as soon as a relationship shifts away from NRE. I don't think this is specific to polyamorous people at all. I actually think you can even see this more sometimes in people who, regardless of relationship status, are more in the casual dating kind of scene of like, oh, I'm going to get really into this person. And as soon as I have them, okay, now I'm bored. I want to move on to someone else. Um, but but that is, you know, that can be a real problem that negatively affects your relationships and your life. Also, polysaturation, that can happen. And if this becomes an issue, like all of a sudden you have seven people for every single day of the week, and, you know, that may potentially become a big issue in your life. And perhaps you're not able to give as much of yourself to the people that you are in relationship with. Also, you know, constant dating or constant acquisition of new partners. For whatever reason, there may be a a multitude of reasons why a person would want to do that. But if it becomes an issue in your life, that is really something to start looking at. Yeah, and I think, you know, exhibiting any kind of behavior of just always being distracted by every single new shiny person that comes along, you know, I think we've definitely seen non-monogamous folks exhibit this kind of behavior of, I just can't say no 
to anybody that I'm attracted to. So like literally if they walk across the room and I'm attracted to them, I'm going to go after them. I'm going to drop everything to jump into the chase of that particular person. Like that or can also be... if they express any interest in me, then I've got to go oh, for it. I have to. I have out. to reciprocate. Yeah. I have to develop some kind of relationship or I have to pursue it in some way. Like, yeah, that can definitely show up in I think really negative ways in people's lives. I had a partner once. I'm not going to tell the whole story. I wish I, we had time to do the whole story, but that's a long and sordid tale. But like had a partner who I don't know if I would categorize him as love addicted, but definitely exhibit some of these sort of compulsive partner acquisition behaviors, like always have he to had pursue a lot of the, compulsive behaviors. Yeah, yeah. Always have to pursue the person that's attractive to me. Um, watched him literally like dive into a taxi after someone <laughs> that he was interested in at a party. Oh my goodness. This person was trying to leave. I think this person was trying to do the subtle goodbye, you know, like I'm just going to go home now. Literally watched him dive into a taxi. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, there it is. A good example, so, though, of where something can go too far, right? Where this yes. behavior might be disordered or, or at least problematic. Some of these things that we've been talking about, Kathy Labriola actually published an article on her site about sex and love addiction within the polyamorous community and, and spoke about some of these things, but also identified the difference between polyamory and sex addiction in, in terms of the relativity impact that seeking love and relationships have on your life. So like we talked about, does it really increase your happiness and quality of life or does it actually deteriorate your life? And she notes that polyamory doesn't require you to center your entire life around sex and relationships in a way that an addiction to either of those things might do, which is interesting because I do think a lot of people who are polyamorous, at least from what I've seen tend to to view it very much as as an identity and it becomes sort of a centerpiece of one's life but it doesn't necessarily have to and even if that is the case it doesn't mean that you're addicted to love or sex it just may mean that that is sort of a centerpiece of your life for whatever reason but again if it goes too far then maybe that's something to look at yeah, that is an interesting question of, is this central to my life in terms of this is my identity and I feel strongly about wanting to be proud of this and normalize mm-hmm. this? Or is it central to my life in that I don't care about way. anything else and this is the only place I get value or a feeling of achievement is from my relationships? I think that's an interesting question to, to ask yourself. This is a quote from Labriola's article. She said, as you can see, the main differences between polyamory and sex or relationship addiction is the addict's lack of control over their behavior and their inability to make rational choices about sex and relationships. Hmm. Yeah. So we're also going to talk about another polyamory great, um, Deborah Annapole, who she wrote the book Polyamory in the 21st Century, and she does talk about polyamory and sex addiction in the book, you know, she kind of makes the argument that sometimes polyamory can provide a convenient cover for people who are actually suffering from sex addiction, love addiction, some kind of compulsive behavior about that. Again, she gives in the caveats that we need to be careful about how we recognize and diagnose addictive behaviors. And Anna Poole's take on it is that, you know, according to her, the most significant trait is the destruction of on existing relationships. So yeah, again, the idea that someone is pursuing a new connection, multiple new connections at any cost, even when it is to the detriment of their existing relationships. And I would even add in my own 
addendum to that, that I think that this would also go to not just existing romantic relationships, but also family and friend relationships as well. Um, now, Annabelle does give some examples of people who are struggling with sex addiction within the context of polyamory. I think at the time that Annabelle wrote this book, like love addiction hadn't quite entered the lexicon quite yet. So I think that's why it all ends up being looped under sex addiction. But I thought this was an interesting quote. So they're talking about the example person they give is named Alex. Uh, so rather, Alex became aware for the first time that non-monogamy was workable only if he could heal the childhood wounds that led him to compulsively lose control when he indulged in his, quote, drug. When he wasn't high on new relationship energy, Alex was an empathic and attentive partner. It wasn't like I could just be satisfied with two or three women and settle down. There was never enough, and I was always tempted by the next one. Alex's high-level communication skills, team spirit, and playful creativity made him a natural for polyamory, but his addictive behavior sabotaged him every time. That's interesting. Do you think it's possible to have addictive behaviors without calling it an addiction? I guess that's the whole thing here, right? Well, sure. Again, again, we start to get into language here, right? Because yeah. I know a lot of people who describe themselves as, oh, I have an addictive personality. Yes. And yes. what does that mean, right? I mean, clearly it's like we're taking the closest word that we have to apply it to a certain group of behaviors, but is it the most accurate term? I don't know. And then another perspective comes from the blog Exploring Deeper. Uh, there's an article from 2016 called Love Addiction, When an Open Relationship Becomes an Attempt to Fill a Void. And in this, the author, she talks about her own experience with love addiction as a way of trying to fill a void within herself. Uh, you know, that, you, that people who do this, they don't feel satisfied with the love in their lives. It's like this, the endless well, or like the cup with a hole in the bottom, right? That no matter how much you put into it, it keeps draining. And they try to fill that void with other relationships and other lovers. And they can avoid problems in longstanding relationships by, oh, all the excitement and newness of a new relationship and all that endorphin rush of NRE lets me kind of not think so much about all the problems I have in my current relationships. And for her at least, and she has a, a TEDx talk on her site that you can watch as well, but she encourages people to change their focus to, to identify this and then learn to focus on filling that well from within. So focusing on self-love so that your connections with others feel more reciprocal and more authentic and may end up filling you up more so you don't have as much of that that emptiness feeling like I've got to fill this in by by going and pursuing more partners and falling in love more. So definitely it sounds like both when we're looking at larger groups of people and also people's personal experiences there is a lot of there is a lot of that experience of having some kind of pain or frustration about this which like we don't want to discount that that's a very real thing and that should be taken seriously. But then it sucks when you have people who just want to throw this label on people who do something that makes them uncomfortable, right? Of like, ah, you're some kind of addict. You have some kind of disorder that makes you want to do this because it makes me uncomfortable to think about people doing it. So there's just a lot of, a lot of nuance and a lot of layers going on here. With all of this, what can we do about this? Especially if we are thinking after listening to this episode, hey, is this something that I got? Do I, am I addicted <laughs> I to love? This? 
Do I, yeah. got, this Do I got this this addiction to love? Should I might as well face it? Yeah, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> that was number five. Yes. Oh, boy. And how do we distinguish between addictive behaviors and maybe just what's healthy sexual or romantic expression? One way to do this is to go to Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous and answer their questionnaire. They have a 40 yes or no questionnaire that tries to evaluate the extent to which your sexual or romantic activities are detrimental to your well-being. And they also have their own criteria for once what constitutes as love or sex addiction. So that might be something for you to look at because we kind of threw a lot of different potential things at you. Is it controlling? Is it not? Is it staying in a relationship? Is it finding a ton of relationships? So I guess you have to kind of determine that for yourself. And this is yet another way for you to do that. There are a bunch of questions, these 40 questions on here, and some of them are more useful than others. So some examples of useful questions include, do you feel that you don't want anyone to know about your sexual or romantic activities? Do you feel you need to hide these activities from others, friends, family, coworkers, counselors, etc.? So this is potentially a little complicated because if you are polyamorous or you're in the kink scene, something along those lines, there may be those of you out there who are not out and who want to keep this, yes, a secret from people because you might be in an area where this is going to get you in trouble in some way with you know, your job or any other number of things. So that's understandable if you were to do that. I But also... You can ask yourself, do you make promises to yourself or rules for yourself concerning your sexual or romantic behavior that you find you cannot follow? That's interesting. Cues into that lack of control. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that a relationship will make your life bearable? Wow. Do you feel like a lifeless puppet unless there is someone around you with whom you can flirt? Do you feel that you're not, quote, really alive unless you are with your sexual or romantic partner? That's interesting. Yeah, that's getting into sort of obsessive behavior. Do you feel that a life would have no meaning without a love relationship or without sex? Do you feel that you would have no identity if you were not someone's lover? And have you ever thought that there might be more you could do with your life if you were not so driven by sexual or romantic pursuits? That's a really interesting one. Yeah, seeing that collection of questions together, it really does speak to, I mean, you you hit the lack of control piece, but also this, like, this erosion of identity and erosion of pathways to happiness outside of this one particular channel, which I think that starts to really pinpoint when it's probably likely to have negative impacts on your life. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's also worth pointing out that so much of what you just read in those questions are also things that we encourage people. Yes, there's that our, too. I, like so many of those are like song lyrics. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's we romanticize this concept. So, so with all of alive. it. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> Gosh, it's all over the place, right? Yeah, so, it is. Stephen so keep, keep that in mind, you know, with all of this, right? The, the point is, do I feel like this is a problem for me? And that that doesn't mean 
if you answer a certain number yes, then yes, this is a problem. It's more, okay, this is something to explore a little bit and, and think about a little bit. There are also some questions on there that we think are not very helpful questions, such as one that is, have you lost count of the number of sexual partners you've had? It's like, well, okay, and some sex negativity built into there, and maybe yeah. you're making some wrong assumptions about having more partners, meaning that it comes from this addictive behavior or mm-hmm. that that means it's out of control or something like that. So <clears throat> there's a lot to take in here. So if you're concerned that you might fall in this addiction spectrum of being addicted to sex or love or something along those lines, maybe you've taken this questionnaire, maybe you've just listened to this episode and are like, huh, this is something that I maybe need to think about. Something you can do is to get an outside opinion from a trusted and competent professional or multiple professionals if you want a second opinion things along those lines. We always love telling people to go talk to a therapist. It's super yeah. important, especially yeah. one that that perhaps specializes in things like this or addiction. This is also a really good area to get community support. So that could look like something formal, like joining a 12-step program um, or otherwise. It could be joining online groups, finding local support groups related to this. And if you go to a support group, it doesn't mean you're necessarily stuck doing that for ages now or that it's a diagnosis like it's okay to go to support group and kind of see what you get out of it and see if it's the right fit yeah also putting your focus back on what are the activities you can do that support your own sense of well-being i know that for me creative pursuits are one of those Mm -hmm. you know working on some kind of art project or a song or something but boy the un comfortableness that comes up with, oh gosh, I don't know if I can start that. Sometimes it feels a lot easier to swipe on Tinder or something instead. So Mm. keep that in mind that it's okay to get through a little bit of that uncomfortableness and and sort of give yourself some room for that while you're trying to pursue some things that you do find really satisfying and rewarding. And then along those lines, look at other ways to get access to that dopamine and serotonin even when you're not around a partner so things like just socializing or exercise or getting a massage or you know a platonic massage maybe with someone if you can't afford to pay someone for it listening to music viewing art not just making it yourself but really looking at what are some other ways to have those kinds of oh wow that feels really good somehow on the inside kind of feelings like that, that don't just involve seeking out new relationships or focusing on the one that you're trying to hold on to. And it's boring. We suggest this often, but things like a mindfulness practice, meditation, or some kind of spiritual practice, it really can help. And I think all of the suggestions that we listed here are good things to try, not even if you feel like you're compulsive about love or relationships or addicted, but I think also if you're in the throes of NRE, right? And you just want to find a way to keep your feet on the ground a little bit more. And again, Mm -hmm. a mindfulness practice can really, really help you be aware of where your thoughts are going, of what triggers impulses, especially impulses to swipe or compulsively be on a dating app or things like that can really give you a lot of information that can help Make it so that you can have more control over where your feelings and your attention and your thoughts go. And one last thing to keep in mind on that subject of mindfulness and spirituality that we talked about previously when we talked about sex addiction on our porn episode a while back 
is that there's a lot of evidence suggesting a lot of the suffering that comes with this can be from our own internalized shame that we may have gotten from the Mm. religion we grew up with or just our culture in general. And so it's possible that the problem is the shame and those beliefs behind it rather than the behavior itself. And that's, again, that's a question to start evaluating, but don't rule out that that's also a possibility. So we want to hear from you, our question that we're going to have on our Instagram stories this week. Have you ever felt addicted to a relationship and Mm. how could you tell? Really curious to hear what y'all have to say about that. The best place for you to share your thoughts on this episode with other listeners is in our episode discussion channel in our Discord server. You can also post in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. This episode was researched by Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.